0: Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT culture podcast. I'm Grizz and I'm a commissioning editor on the Arts Desk here. This week is our Books of the Year special. Al can't be here today, but I'll be joined by two brilliant guests, both of whom write about books for the FT, Arifa Akbar and Alice Fishburne. And later, we'll hear my interview with Sally Rooney, whose award-winning novel Normal People is one of our frontrunners for Book of the Year. So we've been wanting to talk about our Books of the Year for a few months now. There have been some really brilliant books out this year, both in fiction and non-fiction, and some very interesting things happening in publishing, some interesting trends emerging that reflect things, of course, going on in the wider world. So I'm going to talk to my guests, Arifa and Alice, about these things. And I'm also going to ask them, as well as new books, as well as books published this year, which books they turn to in extraordinary times. So extraordinary political times, which we're certainly living in now. But these could also be, you know, extraordinary, wonderful, strange, painful, personal times. We also wanted to talk about a piece that Alice has written, which is published in FT Weekend in the Life and Arts section this weekend. Alice has spent this year only reading books by women. She decided to set herself this challenge at the beginning of the year. And we're going to talk to her about why she did that, what she learnt, whether women write differently from men, why that might be, and whether she's going to continue this challenge into next year. This is our penultimate episode of the series. Next week we have a short story or rather a personal essay by the amazing Korean-American author Alexander Chi. It's from his new collection, which is called How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, which is definitely one of my favourite books of the year. It's a very beautifully written set of stories that sort of slowly and delicately unfold his life as a writer, as a gay man living in America. And it's sort of him growing as an artist and as a person at the same time in these two things in tandem. Uh, He writes with real precision. He's one of my real discoveries of the year, I think. So, yeah, we will, of course, be back with a new series in the new year. If you've enjoyed this series do please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the main ways that people find the podcast, discover it for the first time. If you want to read more of the FT's books coverage, we have a Books of the Year series, uh, fiction, non-fiction, business books, economics books, books about pop, books about fine art. There's everything there um, from some of the best writers around. And you can find it at ft.com books of the year 2018. But for now, I'm going to be discussing my own books of the year with the literary critic Arifa Akbar, who is one of the judges on the Women's Prize for Fiction for 2019, and Alice Fishburne, who is editor of the FD Weekend magazine, and as I mentioned, author of a piece in Life and Arts this weekend. So Arifa and Alice, thank you so much for joining us. For joining me, I should say, pleasure. <laughs> since I'm here on my own. Thank you for having us. So I'm going to start with three of my favourite books of this year. It's very difficult to narrow it down to three, I think. This was a painful exercise, as you may also uh, have felt. Arifa, I'm going to turn to you afterwards mm-hmm. for your three. Mm-hmm. So mine were Rachel Cusk's Kudos, Lisa Halliday's first novel, Asymmetry, and Atessa Moshvague's novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. So the first of these Kudos by Rachel Cusk was the third and final book in her trilogy, the other two being Outline and Transit. It's a very different book, very unlike anything I think I've read before, Mm. in that it's kind of a narrative experiment with a narrator who is largely kind of silent, almost, but not quite absent, in that what these are a string of conversations which read more like monologues, really, of people talking to her, And through the questions that she asks them and the kind of interactions that she has and the small details of things that she says, you begin to sense her outline, hence the title of the first book. I think the interesting thing is that Cusk was criticised for a memoir of divorce she wrote in, I think, 2012 called Aftermath. Sorry, Aretha, you are going to say? Which
1: which I read and found brilliant, but actually terrifyingly honest and sort of searingly self-revealing.
0: Yeah, and she was really, exactly, she was really criticised for this book. And I think she said herself that actually Outline, Transit and Kudos are a kind of literary novelistic response to uh, this very ultra confessional kind of memoir writing what she's doing now is more so auto fiction a kind of blending of, of fictional worlds and real worlds but in a way it's kind of drawing a veil a bit over the very personal authorial experience and yeah I thought this was kind of a brilliant and quite brave experiment in sort of the breakdown of Of marital structure, so she's going through a divorce and the woman in the book, her narrator is going through a divorce, and a kind of novelistic structure, and these two things work very cleverly in tandem. Um, I think female autofiction is having quite an interesting moment, and maybe that's something we can talk about later in the conversation. The second book, Lisa Halliday's Asymmetry, has also been called autofiction, in that the author herself had a relationship with Philip Roth, who in the book is an an author called Ezra Blazer, but sort of very clearly his kind of alter ego. And it's about this uh, editorial assistant at a publishing house in her 20s. She has an affair with this much older writer and it's sort of about the asymmetry or the power imbalances in that relationship. We then cut quite suddenly to another story, to an Iraqi American economist, also living in New York, but in very different circumstances. He's um, at Heathrow Airport waiting for a flight. He's trying to find his brother who has disappeared. We're not exactly sure what the connections are between these two stories. There's then a coda at the end, which very, I think, subtly kind of reveals what what these two connections are and these I think it's asking a question not dissimilar to Rachel Cusk, which is all about sort of empathy and the limits of the imagination. Can we imagine a life which is very unlike our own, very different from our own? Um, It's a kind of Me Too moment novel, but I think does much more than that. And then completely different book, my third book, uh, My, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. This is a wonderful book, and I think also a kind of literary experiment in a sense, in that the narrator is asleep for most of the year, of the title <laughs> she um she is kind of literally not there she's this unnamed kind of chelsea gallery girl quits her job has this quite privileged life living on the upper east side but we realize actually you know psychically and emotionally not so privileged and actually quite tricky and she wants to kind of undergo a rebirth and a, a refreshment of all her bodily cells and You know, it's a very difficult thing to to pull off, I think, a a book in which the narrator is mostly asleep. And the fact that this is so compelling and so um, kind of completely refreshing and very, very funny is a real credit to the writer. It's kind of a very funny portrait of contemporary art, which I enjoyed a lot because I sort of work a bit in that world. And quite subtle kind of criticism. It's, you know, sleeping for her as a kind of um, rebellion against the world, against quite a patriarchal world, a world where... She's very beautiful and she's constantly being misjudged and sort of not being taken very seriously. And I think actually this is her way of sort of a sort of silent, sleeping, beauty, rebellion, which I rather loved. So those are my three. Arifa, I
1: know we kind of had
0: a lot of overlap on our yeah. list. So which were, which were your three? Well,
1: I've I've carefully picked three that aren't your three. But actually listening to you, I see... Some trends and some similarities and parallels already coming up mm. um, between our books. I, I've chosen, maybe predictably, first of all, Milkman, which won by Anna Burns, which won this year's Man Booker Prize. And I've picked it because, I, one, I loved it, but two, the controversy around it flummoxed me. But just to recap the story of Milkman, it's quite simple in a way. It's a teenage girl woman 18 years old we are never given any names in this interesting and very narratively inventive story people are referred to by their generic term the boyfriend or the maybe boyfriend this 18 year old i'll call her girl because she, she she's an innocent she has her head quite literally stuck in a book for most of um, mm. most of the time is living in though it's never named northern ireland of the troubles And it's about her being stalked, quite mysteriously at first, stalked by an older man, and he is a notorious paramilitary, and and he's called Milkman. Um, Although he's definitely not He's definitely not delivering milk. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's doing so much else. And it's been described as a stream of consciousness because we... The world is revealed really through her. Mm. It's a but book it's, that I think feels more like it's spoken. Yes, I mean, it doesn't feel like it's being written down. It's interesting as well. It really does feel mm. like it's been spoken, even though it's not in vernacular. It's completely regular. English, isn't it? Mm. Uh, I think, should we talk about the difficulty? Because people have complained, really, that complained.
0: this is too difficult a book. What do you think that I, means?
1: I, I li- it literally leaves me bamboozled when people say it's a difficult book. First of all, people are misdescribing it as stream of consciousness, which means you're right inside her head, and it, you're just being delivered almost you know sort of a a stream of thoughts Mm. and nothing beyond but you're not there's dialogue here there's scene setting many other characters come in all through the prism of her subjectivity so it is about subjectivity and voice but even one of the booker judges said it was a difficult read I think this is the this is the statement that kicked off everybody's Mm. uh, everybody else's Mm. difficulties perhaps I I have to say it definitely took me sort of 30 40 pages to
0: get into. Once I was in then I was completely hooked. Yeah. But um I think the kind of idiosyncratic nature of the language and the sort of the sense of being in this quite fractured interior mm. world was
1: was strange. But let's move on to your to your next book. So let's hear about those. So the next book is just um much more conventional uh, but a brilliant read. It's Diana Evans's Ordinary People. It's really about Marriage once the first flush of romance has sort of faded and and reality set in, and uh, so has this idea of compromise, marital compromise what's so wonderful about it is the way that it's written the way it explores marriage compromise the loss of freedom particularly motherhood that one character says motherhood is an obliteration of the self which is and now it's actually was quite a taboo thing to say i think now we've seen books that are saying mm-hmm. it particularly, particularly this, this year, year yeah, yeah yeah it's really nice because it's tied together with a playlist so in the course of the story you come across 26 songs and this could have been really forced and really contrived but um, it, it works really organically and really well. Then the third book that I've chosen is it's actually a rediscovered book from 1962. It's a different drummer by William Melvin Kelly. This book and this author made great waves in the 1960s and this he's an American black American author and then was somehow forgotten. It describes a deep deep south of the 1950s, and it's a peculiar story. It's of a small town in which the black community ups and leaves one day, and nobody quite knows why. And it's a mysterious but somehow very angry and defiant act and the white community is just left agog and then you see that that you really focus on the white community even though Kelly, you know, was a black American writer, he didn't want to show in this book black subjectivity. It was all about the white community. Brilliant. Lots of different books there. Alice,
0: you've been doing a slightly different experiment this year in terms of what you've been reading. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yes, absolutely. So I decided this year prompted partly by an attempt to uh, mock my younger brother for his habit of reading only dead white men, that I would only read uh, women, because I realised when I looked at my bookshelves that actually I was in no place to mock him, and I was also reading a lot of dead white men. This was the corrective, so in mm. 2018, whatever I've read, whether it's old favourites or new new books, has all been by women. So I'm just coming to the end of the year now, and it's been really, really interesting. Uh, and so the three books that I've picked for today Mm. are all ones I've encountered while doing this experiment. The first of them is Good and Mad by Rebecca Traister, which came out quite recently and is a meditation on women's anger, particularly as it relates to America right now and Trump and how it's a force Mm. for change and how it's evolved over the years. Did it make you feel sort of angry or that you wanted it was okay to be angry? It made you feel it was okay to be angry. It kind of articulated a lot of the emotions that I think women have felt during the whole Me Too movement and everything else. It kind of helped order my thoughts a little bit. So that was that was the first of them. Uh, the second, something completely different, uh, is a book, All That Remains, by Sue Black. Sue Black is a professor of anatomy and forensic anthropology, who I actually interviewed a few years ago. And I was fascinated by her work and what she does essentially is examine bodies for the clues that they give you about anything from genocide to murder scenes. She sort of starts off with talking about her childhood, where she worked in a butcher's shop, and how she thinks that that probably fed into <laughs> everything that came afterwards. But it also talks through, you know, the extraordinary work that she did in Bosnia with her team, and it just really makes you think about the human body and and what that is even when someone's no longer alive and what it tells you. And then the third book is one that actually came out last year which was a collection of short stories by Roxane Gay, Difficult Women. She's and a I brilliant had, writer. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I feel very ashamed of the fact that I'd never previously read anything aside from her journalism and mm. also following her on Twitter, which I've always loved. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so when I started this experiment, she was on my list of women I knew that I wanted to read more of. And I picked up this book and I was just blown away by it. I mean, I just thought it was, it was one of those books that just stayed with me for weeks afterwards. You know, there's a whole handful of stories and they're sort of unsettling and interesting and profiling women who are a bit outside, you know, the norm mm. and just really making you get under their skin. And I think one of the things that I loved about this year, it's not as though every book I read by a woman was better than every book I've ever read by a man. You know, they all have the same flaws that every book does when, mm. you, when you read a lot. But it was just not having the filter of a man behind the pen. So there was something actually different yeah, about reading women. I you just women. felt, that, you know, that it wasn't it wasn't sort of all funnelled through, through one person and it felt that the authors got a bit of me and were talking to a bit of my experience. Mm. And Roxane Gay's book was, was definitely an example of that. It was these, these slightly prickly, difficult characters who I completely <laughs> related to, basically. Mm.
0: So in the piece you, you talk about it being a sense of coming home to a sisterhood, which I was kind of surprised but also like, delighted to read. What, can you explain that a bit?
2: Yeah, I think it was just the sense of just just being surrounded by women's voices all the time. Um, you don't realise when you're... I mean, I think I also I wrote in there, you know, it's like listening to music and every so often, you know, it can be completely beautiful music, and your favourite, you know, some of my favourite authors are male, mm. but occasionally there'll be a discordant note or uh, something that, that says to me, oh, that's not really how women think, or that's not really what I think a woman would do in that situation, or, oh mm. God, look, that's the worst stereotyping ever. And it was it was like removing that discordant note. Arif, I was going to say, in terms of um, thinking about the year in kind
0: of themes, I mean, there has been some great female literature this year.
1: Well, I was just thinking that as I was listening to Alice, because you chose a really good year (laughs) to have this experiment, (laughs) I think, because a lot of the the fiction, certainly, but some of the nonfiction, some of the best fiction I've read this year has been um, by women, talking in a roundabout way about women so many other uh, uh, brilliant young often quite young novelists are writing um, rewriting myths Mm. you know you've got Daisy Johnson who was shortlisted for the booker who wrote everything under which is reworking the Oedipus myth Kamala Shamsi who won the women's prize with Home Fire rewriting Antigone for today's times Madeline Miller taking um a particular element of the Iliad and writing her book Circe these are just fantastic books you get you you've had a lot of dystopias really interesting dystopias that are examining patriarchy of course you now have recently Margaret Atwood said she's going to be writing a sequel to um the Handmaid's Tale mm. and we had the television adaptation which
0: seemed to kind of catalyze a moment a yeah. sense of like dystopia now and actually this
1: is not not that different to the world that we live in It's really interesting as well to see that men are interested and men Mm. are picking up The the Handmaid's Tale and reading it for the first time, but reading a lot of these other books, you know, statistically, we know that men tend not to read fiction by women.
0: I mean, Alice, you were saying in your piece, you talk about the sort of different reactions that men and women have to your experiment of reading only books by women which I found interesting
2: yeah I think women women sort of got it immediately and were very excited and all had a recommendation as to the next thing I should read which was which was great I think men were a little bit more baffled but mostly quite supportive and actually you know I would have these conversations with people and then I'd get text messages saying what was that what was that title you said again Mm. or I'm going to do I'm going to read this book because it's it's very embarrassing you've pointed this out and now I feel I must fill in the gaps I think men are starting to realise that they, they should be you know, looking across boundaries, and I mean, you know, it was my brother who started all of this because he had some incredibly elaborate point system which he decided was <laughs> the only way that he could make sure he was maintaining a balance. And you know, I really admire that. I think he mm. he realised there was a problem, and he was like, right, I'm mm. gonna I'm gonna fix it.
1: We, we somehow, we, we sort of categorise, you know, the Women's Prize was born because we, f- we forget about the brilliance mm. there, but also the universality. Mm. So men, I think, sometimes stop themselves from reading women's fiction because they think it doesn't relate to them. Well, but I think
0: that's the thing, isn't it? There's a sense that the kind of, you know, quote, universal protagonist is a man, the person that and a white man, the person that we can all relate to. That is a kind of default option. And this year... I sort of got into this, this funny phase of reading autofiction, as I was saying before, this kind of um, melding of memoir and fiction, but particularly by women. And I was thinking, I wonder if this is particularly sort of strange and interesting, this moment, because with a female eye, a female first-person narrator, I think the idea of self-exposure, of speaking up and of taking up space both on the page and in the world, all of these things have different implications, People people read women's fiction differently, um, even when it's not drawn from life at all. It's often read in an autobiographical way. You know, we had... I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is it Knaussgaard or... Naus- yeah, Knausgard, Knausgard, with a K. So, so the final volume of, of My Struggle came out this year at the same time as the final volume of Rachel Cusk's, which was kind of an interesting moment for audio fiction. But then we also have Sheila Hetty and Olivia Lang and people sort of in these quite fun, mm-hmm. playful ways. I mean, Olivia Lang is uh, kind of a good example, I think, because she's known as a, a kind of brilliant uh, non-fiction writer, things like The Lonely City. But Crudo, this book mm-hmm. that she wrote this year takes Kathy Acker, a real-life writer and artist, and you know she starts by saying, Kathy, by which I mean I, and then sort of continues in this very playful way and melds the two and, and sort of says something about Trump, about Twitter, about the way that we live online right now. It does it in this way that it's it's confessional but not confessional, I think, which is the interesting thing. It's not like... Rachel Cusk being really attacked for her book on motherhood or for her book about divorce because that was seen as a memoir and as here I am sort of laying myself bare. It's it's more literary than that. It's more fictionalised.
1: Yeah. I think autofictions also, always existed. I think we've yeah. just named it as this... Uh, And I'm glad that we have because we've taken it out of some sort of ghetto, this sort of misunderstanding that women are so good at writing about themselves. It's this whole Virginia Woolf idea of, you know, the drawing room and writing about the drawing room that you know. Um, But I think what these brilliant writers have done that you've mentioned Mm. have shown us that it's not just about the Domestic minutiae. It's really these are big topics they're talking about, but through a certain sort of prism, it's very it is subjective. Character takes a bit of a secondary role. Um, It's about subjectivity. It's very intimate. I I find when I do read autofiction, I'm hooked very quickly. It takes you right into something. Well, yeah, because it sort of collapses that that distance
0: that you get between the kind of slyly winking, you know, George Eliot saying, "I'm not like my character." Mm And you're sort of right there with the character. And Sally Rooney has spoken about this, I think, mm-hmm. which is interesting because she doesn't write autofiction, but she, you know, she she says herself that she's
1: quite close to her characters. Yes, she has said that she sort of takes from mm. uh, uh, experience. And I, I just think it's nice that that we we're, we're validating autofiction mm. and saying actually this is its own thing. Yeah, and particularly in a moment where
0: truth is quite contested. I mean, kind of politically, facts are. sort of tricky thing and also at the same time we're all narrating our lives constantly through social media and there's this way that actually um, fiction and fact do seem to be blurring at least in the way that we live and so I don't think it's a coincidence in a way that this has become like a, a kind of prominent form of the day. I want to move on though to I guess back in time perhaps to the books that we might turn to I mean in these strange times that we've been talking about are there books that we sort of reach for I mean I guess Alice this year you might not have been able to reach for those (laughs) books because you've been doing your experiment but yeah
2: there's certainly been I certainly have a long list of books by men that I am very excited to read next year that's been building up and also some old favourites that I would normally read in the course of the year I mean I am a massive rereader I completely believe in the virtue of rereading books I think it's like Wearing old sweaters, you know, you want to go back to them. It's familiarity, Old friends, it's comfortable. yeah. Yeah, it's, mm. it's just lovely. And you see different things every time. And mm. there are books I've read once a year for 15 years and enjoyed every single time. And so this year, yeah, some of those, I mean, The Good Soldier by Ford, Maddox Ford, which is one of my favourite books, has just been just sitting there on my shelf, <laughs> staring at me, <laughs> waiting. Um, but I, yes, I do go back in, in troubled times to things that mm. I find... Sort of comforting that take me. I mean, sometimes it is just escapism, you know. Edith Wharton, for example, mm. The Age of Innocence or The House of Mirth, both of which fortunately fell under the female category. Uh, <laughs> I've reread this year, and it, they're fantastic books and they're fantastic commentary on society. And there are definitely echoes, I mean, particularly The House of Mirth and all that happens to poor Lily. Um, you know, there are echoes down the years. But I do think it's really important to have to have your old favourites and, and to keep mm. reminding yourself of why they are favourites. And some might not be forever, um, but mm. returning to them can really can really teach you things.
0: And I think it's interesting that this rereading of books is in itself a kind of now genre of books, the bibliomemoir. There's a- uh, amazing one by Rebecca Mead called My Life in Middlemarch, where mm-hmm. she returns to Middlemarch at kind of decade
1: intervals. It it almost reminds you of the former you in some ways, doesn't it? I don't know if you feel you as a rereader, Alice. You feel that sort of connection yeah. to your past.
2: I definitely think there are sort of peak ages for particular books, and you know if you don't read, say, The Catcher in the Rye between the ages of thirteen and twenty, you're probably never gonna you're never gonna get that experience back. <laughs> yes. I mean you might read it later and still love it, but it wouldn't be mm. for the same, oh, this is speaking to me on these levels. And I think, yeah, you're you rereading is great and gives you different different perspectives. Mm. But there is something about being a, you know, mm. a moody teenager who finds an escape yeah. in books. That um, you can't really recapture in later <laughs> life. tries you might, and as soon as you you know start bringing in all your your constructs of society and the news and the outside world mm. and stop being quite so, um, in my case, self obsessed, uh, <laughs> you know you do lose you lose a certain something, but you gain something else.
0: Well, on that note, <laughs> thanks, Alice, and thank you, Eurythmics. Thank you. <laughs> Next up we have an interview with the wonderful Sally Rooney, author of two novels, Conversations with Friends and Normal People, which came out earlier this year. We first ran this interview with her in October, shortly after Normal People came out, but since then it's become a bestseller and it's won the Waterstones Book of the Year Prize. It's also Al's Book of the Year and definitely is up there in my top five. Sally Rooney is a 27-year-old Irish writer, she currently lives in Dublin, and both her books are set there. Conversations with Friends traces the lives of two undergraduates, two women, who are best friends but formerly lovers, and they become involved with an older couple, uh, a man and a woman. And it's really about this sort of love rectangle, the different power imbalances therein, the way that they speak to each other, the way that they deal with each other, both online and in real life. That thread is carried through into normal people, which actually I think is my favourite of the two books. It's a very beautiful, essentially kind of tale of love and of friendship between Connell and Marianne. They start as two teenagers in a small town in the west of Ireland and as they grow up they move to Trinity Dublin as students there. They're sort of falling in and out of love with each other, in and out of friendship with each other, and the dynamics are constantly shifting but there is this thread that carries it through. These are very literary books, very beautifully written, very well observed, particularly in terms of dialogue, but they're also just real page turners. You're desperate to find out what happens in the end. So here she is, Sally Rooney. Sally, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. So Normal People is your second book, which has followed quite swiftly from Conversations with Friends. Did you approach it differently this time around?
3: Not really. Well, I tried not to because I had I had already started writing the book that would later become Normal People, though the title came very late on in the process. By the time I actually so, sort of sold Conversations with Friends, I already was working on on Normal People, following swiftly on the heels, as you say. Um, so for that reason, I already had the basic bones of the book well really I had the two central characters by the time conversations with friends became a thing so uh, so in that sense I didn't really I couldn't really approach it all that differently because the concept pre-existed all the stuff that went on around the first novel and I tried to maintain as much as I could that sense of being slightly insulated from the outside world while while working on it because I just think it was healthier for me I think yeah
0: I mean it would have been overwhelming considering the reception that conversations with friends had I imagined you could get that sort of difficult second album feeling.
3: Yeah, you definitely could. Um, And at times I'm sure I did. Like it's impossible to insulate yourself completely when there's the level of sort of um, like interest and fuss that there was around the first book. And I realised saying that, like, I mean, you know, it's literary fiction, so it is obviously still relatively small levels of noise and buzz. But if you're at the centre of it, it can feel like a lot. But I did try my best and hopefully succeeded to some extent. And I think it definitely helped that I had been in the world of the second book before that sort of mm. stuff kicked off. Yeah. Mm.
0: And these two worlds, they're quite similar in a sense. I mean, thinking about the, the central characters, they're all relatively young. They're Irish. The, there's lots of concern around things like education, class, money, entitlement or the lack of entitlement. Were you conscious of writing in a kind of post Celtic tiger boom time?
3: It would be impossible for me to write in any other time uh, because I started college in 2009. So really just as the crash was unfolding and it was becoming clear just to what extent the Irish economy had been completely built on sand. And seeing the assumptions about how the market worked in Ireland and also globally just crumble completely. I mean I couldn't just like go back you know mm. before that. Um especially because that was my you know I was that was when I was 18 19 20. And um, do you think
0: something sort of changed psychically? Was there a shift in the way people were relating to
3: ideas around money and class? For me it was definitely a sense that preconceived notions about the economy were shown from my perspective to be pretty much false and then it was like uh, oh so what else is a lie (laughs) and it, it did sort of shift my thinking in the sense that I think I probably became more critical of readily accepted like commonplace truths about society and and about the human condition or humankind thinking a bit more skeptically about those ideas certainly informed who I was at that age and then I'm writing about characters who are at that age you know that obviously goes into the book I think yeah.
0: They have quite an interesting relationship to capitalism. I mean, they're very critical of it. And yet, because they're students, in a way, they're not fully participating in the kind of jobs market. There's a kind of luxury to being critical, it seems, do you think?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're students, as you point out. And that, I think, is the period in which a lot of people start to think critically about capitalism and about other social systems like patriarchy or whatever. I think the student years for people who do go to university probably are a time when that thinking is, fomented like the extent to which it's luxury I don't know it's not like Connell you know one of the protagonists in the second book is from a privileged background he's not at all so there is a sense in which it's just having the space and time and having access to critical literature that gives him the ability to articulate these ideas but also I mean he comes from a like a socialist family he's not like I mean he's had these ideas in his life previous to his time in university as did I.
0: It's interesting to me that there's not much Catholicism in the book I mean, I know this has been pointed out before, but do you feel that it's something that's kind of increasingly irrelevant to sort of educated Irish millennials?
3: Yeah, and I mean, I don't, I don't even think you need the qualifier educated there. I don't think that the Catholic Church has a very important social presence among Irish people of my generation. The main presence of the catholic church in irish life is an institutional presence so like hospitals are owned by the church schools are owned and run by the church there hasn't been in any sense a clean break with the with the catholic past but in terms of cultural norms and stuff i just don't see that it's not an ireland that i recognize i mean i grew up in Castlebar in the west of ireland and i didn't recognize it there either in a relatively small town in county mayo traditionally quite a conservative county i don't recognize that that ireland that's structured by those kind of repressive social catholic teaching yeah
0: so there has been a move away from a kind of older Irish literature that for which Catholicism was a huge theme.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess obviously you're, you know, the literature of a country is hopefully to some extent going to be reflective of certain social realities mm. in that country at that time. And certainly the literature in early, mid, even late 20th century Ireland was very much grappling with the presence of the church it's not in any sense that I'm trying to repudiate the past of, I mean, it was extremely important to write novels about that when it was this sort of crushing reality that it was, but I just don't think that that's reflective of who we are now.
0: It's interesting that in this kind of past literature, the, the ideas of guilt and, and shame and things might have been associated with religion, whereas in particularly in normal people, there's a kind of bodily theme, there's this kind of uh, sadomasochistic sex, mm-hmm. there's self-harm, there's a lot of enacting, psychological feelings upon the body. And I wonder are sort of pleasure and pain are those things close together, do you think?
3: That's certainly something that I'm interested in writing about. I think it was there a little bit in in the first book and I think it's definitely there again, maybe more so in the second one. And I think some of it has to do with gender, like I'm obviously interested in writing about women's experiences and I think as a young woman coming to terms with your sexuality can be quite a fraught process and has been for the characters that I've written about anyway and trying to observe the extent to which sexual pleasure is sort of a legitimate aim for young women and what kind of baggage comes with that when maybe in the specific cases of the characters that I've been writing about there may be some sort of in the case of Marianne I think trauma that alters fundamentally her self-conception as a person so not trying to make any like very direct or simplistic link between her experiences of trauma and her sexual identity but just trying to be sensitive to how those things might flow back and forth between one another and that's certainly something that I'm interested in observing.
0: Mm, It's interesting that for Marianne the the desire to be sort of sexually dominated and subjugated even she's sort of reconciling that with the fact that she's also extremely individual and actually doesn't care what people think more than these other young characters. Mm. Do you think that there's something about kind of contemporary feminism that is coming to terms with Ideas around domination and those two things coexisting.
3: I actually don't I don't know where contemporary feminism is at with those issues now. I feel like I probably need to do more reading about that. Something I'm very interested in that runs through both the novels. And that's probably one of the primary themes of of everything that I've written is the relationship between love and power relations, particularly sexuality and power relations. So trying to observe how fundamentally sometimes sexual relationships can be about exchanges of power and in Marianne's case that's quite an extreme exchange of power like a dramatized or almost allegorical exchange of power but it doesn't have to be that extreme or that sort of obvious in order for it to be there and I think in her relationship with Connell the book's other protagonist they kind of both in some ways eroticize the power disparity between them.
0: Yeah one of the fascinating things about normal people is the way that the power shifts between either person you never feel that one person has 100% of it, but it seems like it's um, the share of it is constantly changing. And it's interesting that in school, Marianne is kind of socially a bit of a pariah. She's having a hard time. Connell, at least on the outside, seems to be having a pretty good time of school. How did you find school? Um, were you Marianne or were you Connell?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I was probably somewhere between the two, which... Is probably most most people are you know hiding in the library. No, I was not like you know. And Marianne arguably is bullied in school, which I was not. But I also was not like you know incredibly charming and beloved by all. I was just (laughs) you know regular. Did you enjoy school? No, I didn't enjoy school at all. And the reason is it had nothing to do with the social aspects of school. It was the repressive atmosphere, the school environment itself, and sort of feeling that I was just constantly being ordered around at the whims of a an institutional power which I fundamentally didn't really recognise as legitimate. consent to in any way it was like why why am I listening to these people like they tell me that they're teachers therefore I'm expected to listen to whatever they tell me and do whatever they say and just sort of unquestionably obey their every whim and I just it didn't make sense to me I just found it really degrading like I have to dress up in like a costume and go (laughs) just go to this big building every day where people just order me around all the time I would never do it again and your life
0: around school did that have more freedom in it
3: like in my home life. Yeah, and so I mean, on. did
0: you? Was it a kind of literary, artistic upbringing, or what sort of things did you do?
3: Yeah, a bit. I mean, my mother was the director of the local art center in town, so definitely. My dad, who was a, a technician with a phone company, Telecom Erin, and um, was also a very big reader. So we had books in the house, definitely, and they were both very encouraging of me reading. I was very much like left to my own devices. I mean, I was allowed to read as much as I wanted and to write as much as I wanted. And I started going to a writers group in town when I was a teenager, and all the other writers were like adults who were actually writing proper stuff and I was like a a teenager writing horrible stuff and they were all really very supportive and I feel like I had quite a free independent existence but I was also quite solitary I suppose because I was a reader and a writer I mean you kind of have to be solitary a lot of the time to do those things so um, yeah. Was
0: there a point where you where you knew that you were going to be a fiction writer? Did you sort of always know?
3: No I mean I was always writing fiction I certainly didn't always know that that was going to be my career I've been writing fiction since definitely since I was a child. Like, I can't remember a time when I wasn't doing that. So, But I didn't really have anything I wanted to do for a job and still don't. (laughs) So, I mean, get away with not having a job to to the fullest extent possible. I never had a career that I wanted to pursue. The world of sort of status and careers and professional life, I was never drawn to that.
0: But there is kind of, there's the same sort of hierarchies and status and all those worries in literary life, is there not? Arguably even more so when... Everybody's sort of on their own,
3: but that's the thing. Like you're on your own, so you no, not really. So I you mean, can ignore it more. Well, yeah, because you're not actually in it. I mean, I live in Dublin and I edit the Stinging Fly Journal in Dublin, which is a journal of new writing. So in that sense, I'm very much involved in the literary world there. But I don't, I don't see the status hierarchy stuff that much. I mean, maybe that's naivety on my part. I guess I'm, I'm quite like reclusive in my personal habits. <laughs> I don't really go out much. So I suppose people sometimes just have an image of a literary scene as
0: being sort of backstabbing and people sort of worrying about where they are and on the kind of ladder of
3: things. And yeah, I think maybe Ireland is like too. S- Mall for that to be the reality, maybe it is maybe it's the reality behind my back. that's all going on. I have no idea, but certainly my experience of the Irish literary scene is first of all, it's like a fairly small community and also very, very supportive, very kind from the beginning before my book came out. everyone was really very nice to me, and since then it's been exactly the same, you know, quiet, like not <laughs> not a lot you know, I don't know,
0: not, not, a, cloak not, a, not a lot of drama, and no. yeah, I just I haven't <laughs> no, encountered really any drama, yeah um. um People have written about you a lot and sometimes in terms of a sort of Irish, a contemporary Irish tradition of writing. And then also in other traditions, including a sort of millennial, slightly confessional women's writing tradition with, you know, figures like Lena Dunham with girls and Sheila Hetty. Do you have any sense of being connected to other writers in a tradition?
3: It would be very disingenuous to say no, because it's impossible to write a a novel that isn't in conversations with other novels, I think. Like the novel form is what it is. And by engaging in it, you are necessarily engaging with other novels. You can't write like the neutral novel. (laughs) Um, There's definitely a sense that I'm trying to come to terms with what the novel is. And that necessitates coming to terms with particular traditions and sort of threads running through the development of the novel. And Um, are there any particular traditions and threads?
0: that you feel you're speaking to or influenced by? Yeah,
3: well, I mean, influenced by certainly, I think the 19th century novel, really, its formal structure and its sense of, like the engines at the heart of those novels really, um, for me, are like, that's how you do a novel. And I feel their influence very strongly when I'm writing But then I also think there are contemporary writers who, when I read their work, I feel like, oh, that's what I want to be doing, which doesn't mean that I'm succeeding in doing it. (laughs) But definitely Sheila Hetty would be one of those writers. I remember reading Miranda July's first collection of stories. I think I was still in school then and feeling like, oh, it's possible to write like this. It's possible to do this kind of thing. It's interesting that some of
0: these more recent female writers, they're often talked about in terms of autobiography or memoir. And in certain ways, there seems to be a kind of confessional element of that. Is that a frustrating thing to be asked whether your work is autobiographical or...
3: I mean, it's not frustrating. I just, I don't really know what the question means because I don't know what the substance of the question is. Like, I suppose it's a question about process.
0: And it seems to be a question that's asked specifically... To women
3: writers. Yeah, I've heard that women hear it more, and obviously, having never been a male writer, I have nothing to compare it to, (laughs) but I've I've heard that women do hear it more. I mean, maybe there is something different about the fiction that women are writing now, and that's what's necessitating the question, or that's what's triggering the question, or maybe it's just that there's a particular attitude toward women writers, and that's what's triggering the question. I honestly don't know. I just, I guess, I find the question a bit like, what does it tell you? If I say yes or no, what does it tell you? I mean, I I don't think that you gain any good, interesting, or critical information about the book from knowing that in a
0: a way it's um it's the interviewer asking tell me a bit more about your life yeah I mean, it's a kind of veiled way of asking for some biography.
3: Yeah. And it's also kind of I've wondered whether it's sort of a so did all this stuff just happen to you then? You didn't actually make it up, did you? Which is, <laughs> I mean, I think that's a kind of a misunderstanding of what the work of writing fiction involves to think that like if something's happened to you that it involves like a little bit less creativity to write about it than if, some, than if you had to make it up. They're both exactly the same thing. You're just sitting with your laptop or a piece of paper putting words in a particular order whether they're based on stuff that's happened to you or they're not. I don't think it makes much difference to the creative process. Maybe people think, you know, men write great works of imagination and women just write about their own sort of personal lives. I obviously don't think that that's true, either in my case or in the case of most women writers.
0: The internet for a while was seen as kind of being problematic for fiction writers. You know, so many traditional plots kind of hang on people not being able to WhatsApp each other or not being able to just instantly Google something. But the internet in your books it feels like it's sort of woven into it's just another platform for conversation. When you were writing them, do you think about how am I going to deal with this thing?
3: No, I I didn't really. I think I've actually found the internet quite useful in writing books because it makes sense for the characters to express themselves that way and get to know each other that way it's been useful and it's also been interesting because I'm interested in words and how people communicate and, and the differences sometimes subtle and sometimes not of how people use language in a written form like email or instant messaging and how they use it in face-to-face dialogue. But obviously I don't think of the internet as like a, that kind of thing you know because like I grew up on the internet Mm. yeah Mm. so I don't like I I barely remember a time before internet it doesn't feel to me like it's separate from the world of the of the characters and so having that perspective probably maybe probably helps me to to write about it a bit more smoothly but having said that I, I I haven't really read any bad examples of internet writing I've been told that they're out there but I haven't really encountered them I generally like reading novels where online textuality is included in the body of the novel in some way
0: Well, I think it also might feel like an affectation to... Set a novel now and remove all of that stuff because it is so much the fabric of our lives. It it would perhaps be odd not to have it
1: there.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think the question is just like, how do you elevate that something that feels so mundane, like you say, it's so part of the fabric of our lives, and make it something literary, like not make it sort of boring and ugly for the reader to have to go through? But then you don't want to heighten it so that it's unrecognizable either. I mean, you still want it to be recognizable as real life, but then that's just a microcosm of the whole thing of writing a novel. You know, you want to make it recognizable but not make it really boring. That's sort of the whole job, yeah.
0: So your books are full of this kind of very um, pacey dialogue, and at times it feels like you could be reading, you know, a screenplay. How do you feel about the fact that these might one day be turned into films or, or TV? Well,
3: they are both being turned into films. Oh, they are? Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and I'm working on the TV adaptation of Normal People myself. Um, ah. So, yeah, I mean, that's been a very interesting process so far in its very early days um, but I've never really worked with scripts before even though I write a lot of dialogs, dialogue mm. scenes in the book it's very different turning them into or trying to turn them into scenes that will play out on screen and you can't play with time in the same way which is something that I didn't realise I was doing all the time when I'm writing novels and then yeah, when you, you lose the go back to into somebody's memory yeah mm. all that's gone so you can't but you also can't just say 10 minutes later Unless you want to put up a cue card reading 10 minutes later, you can't really do that. So you have to learn different ways of playing with time because time is actually passing in front of the viewer's eyes. So all kinds of little things like that that I'm having to think about.
0: Do you think it will be strange to see these creations as real flesh actors? Yeah. And to see the places. Yeah,
3: the places, I hope, won't be that strange because well interiors are all fairly similar aren't they I mean I don't think the interiors will be will be that shocking and then hopefully we'll get to keep the locations as close to real as as we can because they're currently the town that the first book is partly set in is not a real town but but it will look like many small towns in Ireland so I don't think that any of that process will be too shocking. What will be quite strange for me if it gets to the stage is seeing actors play the characters um, because obviously I know exactly what they look mm. like in my head and that will never be what they look like in real life so there's part of me that doesn't it doesn't want that to happen because it's like I'm afraid that they will forever replace the characters yeah. in, in my head yeah. but it's when I mean, it's very exciting and I suppose it's like being open to you know working with new forms I'm not trying to be too sort of neurotic about holding on to the you know the very closed sort of private world mm. that I've created for myself
0: so you're adapting the screenplay for normal people but not for conversations with friends yes. is someone else
3: doing that uh I believe so yeah but that's still also They're very still early in days. Talk. Yep. okay yep. okay is it true
0: that you write very fast
3: I do write very fast, yeah, but I also delete a lot. In fact, the majority of what I write ends up getting deleted. I mean, I definitely write quickly, very intensely, working a lot of hours a a day and getting very in my head about uh, the characters and wanting to sort of follow them everywhere.
0: Are you happiest when you're in that state of mind when you're writing?
3: Yeah, I definitely am, even though it's so frustrating. (laughs) Yeah, even though it's so, so frustrating, I'm definitely happiest because I feel like I have something you know, I have like a secret world that I can kind of retreat to and spend time in in my head. So I don't get you can't get bored like you, you definitely can't get bored if you're trying to figure out what to do next in a book that you're writing, because it's always sort of there on your mind. But it also means that just navigating the world, walking through a city or, you know, you're kind of thinking about your characters doing that and what and what they would perceive and how it would be different for them. So it, there's a kind of usefulness to all your days then because um, you can put them somewhere, hopefully into the book.
0: And Normal People is on the Booker Prize long list. Do things like awards matter to you?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's always, I mean, it's always very nice mm. to be, to feel that people have enjoyed the book, whether those people be readers who picked it up in a bookshop and have never heard my name before, or the readers who happen to be the judges on the on the Booker Prize. It's always very nice to think that anyone has enjoyed the book. So for that reason, of course, it's always lovely to be nominated for something. But um, yeah, no, I, I don't think that I'm someone who, like, lies awake thinking about awards or anything. Do you read reviews? Uh, I do read reviews. Yeah, I do read reviews. Um, do you find them helpful or annoying? Yeah, or... I, uh, I don't read other coverage. So I don't read coverage about me or interviews with myself or anything. I think that would just be <laughs> that would be too weird. But I do read reviews of the book. For me, I think it's important to just be open to hearing honest criticism. First of all, people might point out things that you're like, oh, that's actually that's actually true. It's a good way of reminding yourself that the book doesn't belong to you anymore. You know, it's in the world now. But it, yeah, I think it's important for me because otherwise I think I'd I'd start believing that the book actually was still mine.
0: Mm. So you're 27, is that right? That's right. Yeah. You've published two very acclaimed books. Thank you. um, In two years, what's next?
3: (laughs) Can you say? Yeah, I mean, I can say because I don't know. I don't know what's next. Yeah, I mean, I'm as I said, I'm I'm editing the the Stinging Fly Literary Journal in Dublin. it's still going on. Our winter issue will be coming out in November. So that's kind of the day job. Like that's um, and it's great and it's a lot of work and it keeps me focused. And then. Hopefully, I'll write I'll write something new. I don't know when it will be or what it will be. It could be very different from the two that I've already done. Or it could be, like, very similar again. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. Um, so I can't actually say. And then, as I said, I'm working as well on the adaptation, the TV adaptation of Normal People. So that's plenty to be getting on with, I think, yeah. Sally, thank you so much. For thank you us. so much for having me. Thank you. <laughs> um,
0: I wondered if you might sign my books. That's I'd very fangirlish. Delighted I'm to. Sorry. No, I would be <laughs> delighted to. that's it for this week Sally Rooney's book Normal People is out now and I highly recommend it you can read Alice's piece on a year of reading women at ft.com slash life arts and the FT's Books of the Year series is at ft.com slash books of the year 2018 we'll post links to both of these on our Facebook page Al and I will be back next week with a brilliant personal essay from the writer Alexander Chi recorded in New York do let us know what you think of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash everything else podcast, or you can email us at ft.com. And please do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Everything Else was edited this week by Penny Bell. I've been Grizz and our music
1: is by Fatim.